Oh my, we're starting our a fall series uh, today on the living gospel, what it means for the people of God to actually practice the gospel instead of just believe in it. And so the message today, I want to talk to you about that very, very, very powerful word in the Bible, the gospel. The question that I've been wrestling with the last uh, few months on this uh, that I had all sorts of fun with uh, goes something like this. If you knew how things were going to end, what would you do? <laughs> Think about that. First time I heard that question to myself, if you knew how things were going to end, what would you do? I had fun with it at first. I thought, you know the money I would make in stocks. You know the money I would make in the final 64 in March Madness. ESPN has a $1 million purse, by the way, since everything's about sports. ESPN has a $1 million purse. If you get every game right, I'd fill that sucker out and spend the money before the tournament even started. If I knew how things would, can you imagine the money you'd make playing the lottery? Now, some of you are like, we don't believe in gambling. Dude, if you know how it's going to end, that ain't gambling. <laughs> You're just taking it. Then I uh, started to ask myself other questions what jobs would people move into? And what individuals would you pour more time into? What classes would you take? And which ones would you drop if you knew how the market was going to go at the end? Somewhere in his first inaugural address, Barack Obama made a statement I, 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 I can't forget. He talked about the rise of terror in the Middle East, and then there was a place in that statement where I think he said, but we are on the right side of history. It's a powerful statement. If you knew how things were gonna end, you would always be on the right side of history. You would back things that you knew were always gonna win you'd let go of things that were going to run out of steam if you knew how things were going to end. If you knew how things were going to end, you'd hold on. Your whole temperament would be different even though nothing had changed because you knew how things were going to end. Last uh, March, during the March Madness uh, because in our homes, in our house, we hate commercials, so we like video everything. By the way, football season starting started yesterday in college starts next week. If you're a Lions fan, uh, yeah, <laughs> we'll meet in the atrium afterwards and repent in ashes. <laughs> Don't text me in the middle of games because you understand I'm a good. 45 minutes behind y'all when you do this. So uh, last March, in the middle of, we were texting, we were videoing this game that Michigan was in against Louisville, and uh, all of a sudden, in the restaurant, my phone just blew up, and all these people from college church start texting me, say, oh, what about them Wolverines? Of course, I'm a Wolverine fan. So I'm like, oh man, I'm, I'm looking at my text and we are, you ruin the game when you do this. So across from me is now my son and he's looking and saying, why are you smiling? I'm going, nothing. 
He says, are you getting texts about the game? I went, <laughs> we went home and started to watch it and they were behind at halftime, six, eight points. Went into the interviews. I said, no man, don't fast forward. I want to watch the halftime interviews. He said, dad, you never watch the interviews. I said, I want to watch them this time. I want to see what the coach says. I want to look into his eyes. I want to read the stuff that he says. He said, do you know how this thing ends? I went, I could watch the whole second half of that game with an entirely different attitude because I knew I was going to end. You know how things are going to end. It changes things. Imagine you were a slave in the fields in the south in the 1800s. There's a hoe in your hand. And this is the only life you've known you were born into this and you were giving birth to your children into this. There is no other life for you. And all of a sudden, somebody comes into the fields and they whisper into your ear that Mr. Lincoln is about ready to sign a proclamation of emancipation. And when he does this, everything is going to change. You'd look around you in the fields and it would seem like nothing had changed. But in your heart, you would have heard a message that nobody else would know yet. Do you think it would change the way that you felt about your living environment? Suppose you were a German citizen, not a Jew, living in Nazi Germany in prison yourself because you were part of the resistance. Preemptive measures is what Hitler called it in because you would not agree to the Nazis' idiocy, they take you and separate you from your land and your family and put you in a work camp, as they were called. And how might it change if someone would have broke into the prison one day and whispered into your ear that the Allies had just taken Utah and Omaha Beach in Normandy, they had broken the back of the Nazi regime. You'd look around you and nothing will have changed. And yet, you knew from that message, eventually, something would change. When someone breaks into your prison and whispers that message to you, there's a word for that in the Bible. It's the word gospel. When I grew up, I knew what the gospel was. The gospel was that Jesus has died for my sins. He'd come back from the dead. And if I repented of my sins, he would forgive me. And when I died, I would go to heaven instead of hell. That's good news. The problem is that it doesn't seem to have a lot to do with your living environment right now. Nothing changes in the meantime. Paul said something like that. He said in 1 Corinthians 15, he said, Jesus Christ was crucified and on the third day raised from the dead and appeared to the disciples, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, if you're keeping score. He said in 1 Timothy, there is one God 
and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. And in 2 Timothy, he said, he was a descendant of David. He was raised on the third day. This is my gospel. It's what I heard. That's it right there. Imagine my surprise one day to learn that the word gospel does not occur first in the gospels. It occurs in the Old Testament. Let me say that in slow motion. 1,000 years before Jesus was even around, the word gospel is being uttered. First in the historical books, a few times in the Psalms, but when you get into the prophets, it just goes viral. Timing is everything. The problem in the prophets is not an individual sin, it's slavery. God's people are in exile. They're working for somebody else. They're in the field or in the prison, and the only life they've ever known is that kind of captivity. And all of a sudden, the prophets come alive. Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 40, you who bring the gospel to Zion, go up to the mountains and you who bring the gospel to Jerusalem, lift your voice with a shout and say to them, here is your God. (laughs) Some translate that. Look, here comes God. Some translate it, God is on the move. Isaiah chapter 52, he says, how beautiful are the feet of messengers on the mountains. He has in his mind the image of messenger boys that would, before the days of cell phones, they'd sneak to the front line where the war was going on. They would notice a historical event. Something had changed on the front line that would change the outcome of the war. The messenger boy would then run on the top of mountains for miles and sometimes days until he got back to the little villages that would one day feel the impact of that change that had happened miles away. And the word that he gives to them is, guess what? Your God reigns. God rules is the word. Nahum 1.15 says the same thing. Blessed are the feet of those who proclaim the gospel, who proclaim peace to the world. Suddenly you're in your prison and a messenger comes breaking into your little prison yard or into your field with a hoe in your hand and he whispers something in your ear And he says, guess what? God is on the move. God has just landed. Something has changed at levels far over your head. And it's going to radically change the outcome of things. And it's going to change you. That's good news. How's he going to do this? Isaiah says God is going to send a messenger into the world. Quiet little kid that nobody will even know was here. 
You won't even see him. You won't recognize him until he starts to work. And then you will see a slow and steady changing of the tide. Israel kept waiting for God to come crashing down from the mountains and just crush the enemy and set up shop. And the prophet says, you won't know it. But when he gets here, like the tide gradually coming in, imperceptibly at first, God's kingdom is going to rise. So in Isaiah chapter 61, this messenger comes forward and says, the spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach the gospel. There's that word again. To bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for people enslaved, to release people from their darkness, to comfort people who mourn, to replace the spirit of despair with a garment of praise. That's the gospel, he says. Let me stop. Time out and tell you what you've heard so far. The gospel according to the Old Testament is that no matter how dark it seems right now, God has broken in. And he's brought an entire kingdom with him. And even though nobody around you knows this yet, God is on the move. That means that from this day forward, nothing is as it seems. However it appears to you, the tide has already begun to turn. And God will ultimately win the day. Now, if you've noticed a few things about the gospel has just been changed. First of all, the gospel is not a religious event. It's the secular event. The gospel is not something religious people believe and keep to themselves so that they can take their souls to heaven. The gospel is something that God is doing writ large across the world. When the gospel is unleashed, kingdoms change, not just people. So this ain't something you talk about in Sunday school, and it's not something that you think about in theology classes. The gospel is not a series of theological claims. It's a series of promises. It's not something handed to you with the hope that you will somehow believe this. It is something unleashed upon the world with news of what God is going to do. Let me say that in slow motion. So the gospel is not something that evangelists use in order to get you to become a Christian. The gospel is something prophets use in order to get you to participate in the campaign that God is bringing into the world. He is unleashing a kingdom. Are you in? That's the message of the gospel. 
so the target is not necessarily individuals living with sin. It's people who are trapped in exile. They're living in a kingdom where somebody else is in control and the value systems are completely opposite of their value systems. And somebody busts in and says, guess what? God has just landed. <laughs> Aslan is on the move. The night is about over. The tide is beginning to rise. The kingdom has been unleashed and God will win the day in the end. Man, that's good news. You understand, there isn't a single thing on this earth that that doesn't alter. That don't mean that everything is gonna be fine and perfect, but it means that whatever else is wrong with the world, God has unleashed a kingdom in this world and things are actually getting better, <laughs> not worse in spite of what you've heard. If you think things are getting worse, dude, you got bad information. God has an army all across the world, quiet, hidden, subtle, doing invisible things in private places, and those things are beginning to turn the tide. The problem in the Old Testament, <laughs> you're gonna, are Old Testament people in the room? God bless you. It, is that in the Old Testament, so often when God speaks, it seems like nothing changes. He'll make rash promises and it feels to us like nothing is different. So in this case, when God is through talking through the prophets, making his rash promises, justice, he said, will rise from the mountains and fairness will settle in the plains. Nothing happens for 400 years. Then hmm. all of a sudden, one day, a teenage girl, minding her own business, in a house in Nazareth is visited by an angel out of nowhere. Nobody knows why her and nobody knows why then, but an angel shows up and this is what he says. Greetings, you're highly favored. The Lord is with you. You're gonna give birth to a son and you'll name him, help me, Jesus. Wait for it. And he will reign on his father's throne. Here it is. And his kingdom will never end. That there's pure gospel. God, Mary, is breaking into this world. As they say in the South, he's a fixing to get ready to do something. That means God is on the move. And when God is on the move, all of the structures that you know are going to change. And Mary, 
God will win the day. Mary doesn't know what to make of this until she heads off to her cousin's house. And when she gets there, without knowing it, she bursts into song. She doesn't even, I think she doesn't even fully know what she's saying. She's talking better than she knows at least. And she says, my soul glorifies the Lord. We call it the Magnificat. My soul rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of his humble servant. This is what she says. He will scatter the thoughts of proud people. And he will take humble people and he will lift them up. He will take people that are hungry and he's going to fill them with good things and he's going to take people that are rich and hoard things and he's going to send them away empty. Let me translate that. Mary, God has landed. He is on the move. Behind him is a kingdom. Things are slowly but surely going to change The structures that you knew are all going to be upended until the powerful become humble and the humble are elevated. Until the rich become poor if they hoard it and until the poor are made rich. Until those on the margins are brought to the center and those in the center are moved to the margins. Mary, when this happens, you know that God is on the move. And Mary, remember this, he will always, always win the day. Thirty years later, this child, this Jesus He walks into a synagogue. Somebody hands him a scroll. He opens the scroll of all places to Isaiah 61. This is what he says. He reads, the spirit of the Lord is upon me and he has anointed me to preach the gospel. There's that word again, to the poor. He's told me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, to recover sight for the blind, to release those who are caught in darkness, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll (laughs) and he just handed it to the attendant. I I think that's something like a first century mic drop right there. (laughs) And this is what he said next. Wait for it. He said, on this day, that scripture is being fulfilled in your hearing. Problem in the Old Testament is when God speaks, it seems like nothing happens. When he rolls up that scroll, something has just happened. He's saying, in effect, it's here. There's one more thing that you just learned about the gospel right there, didn't you? The gospel is not primarily a set of beliefs. 
There are wonderful things to believe in the gospel. But please don't reduce it to a series of beliefs. The gospel is a series of actions. He has anointed me to preach the gospel. Keep reading, church. To proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recover sight for the blind, release people that are trapped in darkness, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's the gospel. Now you know what it means when Jesus gathers the disciples with him just before leaving the world. And he says to them on the Mount of Olives, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now go into all the world and preach the gospel. This ain't something preachers do in church because the gospel is not primarily meant just to be heard in church. No, no. The gospel is meant to be preached with a series of actions that follow the service into every domain. Now you know why y'all are in college, don't you? You're not in school so you can learn how to make a lot of money. No, listen, man, that is somebody else's agenda. No, no, you're in school in order to get as good as you can get at your discipline so that you can take it out of school and you can unleash that discipline across the world. That's why you're here. It ain't to look famous and it's not to make a lot of money. It's to help God unleash the campaign that will ultimately win the day at the end of time. This doesn't mean that everything's gonna be perfect. It won't be perfect. There will still be profound loss. There will still be natural disasters and hurricanes that upend families and take millions of dollars of property away. But whenever this happens, there will be an army of God's people all across this world who will help shoulder the crosses that other people bear. This does not mean that there will not be people who are kicked to the margins, good people who are deprived of power. But what it does mean is that there will be a community of people somewhere in this world always making room at the table. <laughs> This does not mean that there will never be wars and people won't die, but it means that where there are wars, the people of God will learn what it means to forgive their enemies. Oh, church, do you realize that when you hold the gospel, you have hold of a whirlwind? You just might not know it. The gospel radically alters every structure that we have been raised in. The flow of money, the flow of power, 
Who makes decisions and how things get changed is radically altered by the gospel. What is important and what means nothing and how you change structures in this world is radically altered when Jesus is unleashed across this world. I'm not saying these things to ask whether you believe them. That's up to you. I'm telling you, this is the way the world is going. Are you in? Oh, that the people of God who are in positions of power right now, some of you, I know some of you have people in your lives who answer to you. Oh, that the people of God who are in positions of power would realize that the gospel of Jesus Christ makes claims on their offices and on their schools and on their dorms. And all that people of power would stop deferring to a power that is over them as if there is some man that we answer to. All that we would take the reins of the office that we're in and say by the claims of the gospel, this is how people get treated in the area where I work. Oh, how it would change the way people live. And how would it change People that answer to them. Some of you have been without power so long. Criticism is your native tongue. We know this. We know this because some of you post these things on Facebook. Oh, that the people of God who answer to others with no power of their own would understand that even the one that they answer to is not completely in charge. Remember when our daughter was in the sixth grade in the public schools and went in, she wrote a science paper on creation. The teacher called me in and because halfway through her speech, the, the teacher shut her down. Said, you can stop talking now. Sit down. So she was of course humiliated came home. When I heard about it, I said, we need to have a conversation with that teacher. So I went in to talk to her and halfway through the conversation, she said, Mr. Deneff, I don't think you understand. This is a public school. You cannot bring God into the classroom of a public school. <laughs> I remember... My training is in theology, so I remember saying to her, Mrs. Beep, won't use her name. <laughs> what you have just said is an ontological impossibility. You cannot keep him out of this classroom. God owns every square inch of this earth, even this classroom. You can make any rule that you want, you can set students down and tell them that they cannot talk. You can flunk them if you must. But the one thing you cannot do is keep God out of a classroom that he already owns. 
I'm not being a bully, ma'am. I'm just telling you the way things are. There have been movements taking place way over your head. (laughs) The, The outcome is done. Are you in? Church, are you in? So I've been uh, bothered by those prisoners in the concentration camp. And because I live in a university church, I figure I can either um, go to Wikipedia or I can call a professor. So I called Mark Smith. He's one of the history guys in our church. And I asked him, is it true that when the allies landed, um, the entire battle shifted? Here's what he said. Steve, the battle for Normandy following D-Day invasion lasted, of course, until August of 1944. That was almost three months. However, it was clear by mid-July that the allies were in France and they were there to stay. Rommel told Hitler on July 13 that the Allies would soon break through now and make it all the way to the German border. So on July 17, Rommel met with Heinrich Eberbach at the headquarters in the Panzer Group, asking him for his evaluation. Eberbach replied, we are experiencing an overwhelming disaster on two fronts. I wouldn't call it that. Listen to his language. We have lost the war but we must inflict upon the Western allies the highest possible casualties to bring them to a ceasefire, which, of course, they never did. Church, we live in an extraordinary day. We are bombarded by news from the Middle East of terrorism on the rise. It's not even an Islamic religion. It's it's a religion of death. It's the worship of violence and death. And they have made stomping out the West one of their goals. We hear of political unrest in the Far East. We hear of racism all across the larger and smaller cities of America. We see our major cities are starting to burn. We feel that the political climate in America is so fragile that it goes from disagreements into war in just seconds. It seems like the people who are running this country and supposed to put us on track can't agree on a single thing. So like some of you, I sat back for the last Six months and I read all the news reports. Man, I was depressed. I finally quit news. Don't watch it anymore. About this time, I thought I would, for devotions, pick up uh, the book of Revelation. Because pain, masochism runs in my family, I thought, and 
I mean, how does it sound? Your devotions for the day. And I saw four horsemen, one named plague, one named famine, one named death. Have a good day. (laughs) And I got through halfway through the book and I noticed the tide began to turn. I started to hear themes in Revelation that were exactly opposite. All the crap, and that's the right word, I was watching on the news. And I started thinking to myself, maybe I'm getting bad information. (laughs) Maybe this is a picture of how everything is going to end. And maybe I should start adjusting the way that I'm living and feeling today according to the way things are going to end. Can I read it to you? Please tell me yes. Yes. Oh, it's so good. I was going to anyway, but thank you. (laughs) The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven. And this is what they said. The kingdoms of this world have already become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And the elders who were seated on their thrones before God, they fell on their faces and they worshiped God and they said, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was because you have taken all of that power and you have begun to reign. And after this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. Listen for a church, people from every nation, every tribe, every ethnicity, every language. And they were standing before the throne of God in front of the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and they had palm branches in their hands and with a loud voice they sang as one salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb and the angels were standing around them and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying amen praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Then one of the elders, one of the elders, he tapped me and he said, these men in white robes, who are they and where do they come from? And I said, I don't know, only you know. And he said to me, "Uh, these are those that have come out of tribulation. They have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. And now they are before the throne of God and they serve Him day and night. And He who sits on that throne will spread His tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them. For the Lamb, the Lamb is at the center of the throne and He will be their shepherd and He will lead them to springs of water. And God Himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let the church get on its feet. Get on your feet, church. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth a royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Ye chosen seed of Israel's race, ye ransom from the fall. 